Come in your Bibles with me to Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3. And uh, today, um, considering the, the thought, power, and prayer coming from Paul's words here to the church at Ephesus, as you're turning there, uh, I remind all of us to remain diligent in reading through the book of Ephesians. This is kind of the point where, you know, we've, we've read through a couple times, a couple weeks, um, and maybe some excitement is waning, and we're only halfway through the book. And so we have another four, five, six weeks left uh, to journey through the book, and so I, we encourage you to keep reading through the book of Ephesians. Just read a chapter a day or read through the whole book at one time, whatever works best for you, vary your reading in uh, whatever way is most beneficial, Uh, but let's keep reading through uh, the book of Ephesians together. Uh, A few questions to kind of gear our minds toward our text this morning. One, do you pray? It seems like kind of a no-brainer. We profess to be Christians, so of course we pray. Well, I think we make some assumptions oftentimes, right? Uh, And it's important for us to just even ask a self-reflective question, do do I pray? Uh, So do you pray? How do you pray? Why do you pray? What are your motives in praying? Uh, what, what does your praying consist of? What, what are you praying about? What are you praying toward? Uh, and prayer is an issue for the Christian that is absolutely essential, but all too often is um, much neglected. We spend time doing things that it seems we can check boxes, like reading through the book of Ephesians over and over, uh, attending services, or going, meeting small, going to small group meetings. And we can go, it seems, days without praying at times, um, which is a, a great way for a Christian to really shoot themselves in the foot, right? This is one of the primary avenues through which God has given to us to commune with Him, And one way for us to learn how to pray and even to learn why we pray is by looking at Scripture, and specifically prayers in Scripture. Uh, Scripture from beginning to end is uh, uh, littered throughout with different examples of prayer and teachings on prayer. You see saints of God throughout history praying. Uh, Jesus' disciples asked Jesus to teach them one thing. Not to perform miracles, not to cast out demons, not to make the blind eyes see, not to even raise the dead, but Lord, teach us to pray. That's what they said to Jesus. And so that brings us to our point here in Ephesians 3, in the middle of the book. And if our passage today, verses 14 through 21, serves as a hinge point in the overall flow of the letter. So up to this point in Ephesians 1 and 2, and then the first part of chapter 3, we've covered primarily doctrine. Paul has has written to the church at Ephesus and reminded them of all kinds of gospel-rich doctrine. And in chapter 4, he's going to make a transition and begin to address things of practice. He's going to tell them how to operate as a body of Christ and talk about relationships in, uh, in community and in marriage and in the world and then how to actually fight spiritual battles, how to engage in spiritual warfare. And right in the middle of these two, these two aspects, in the middle of doctrine and in the middle of practice, we have this hinge here at the end of chapter 3 that is focused on prayer. And Paul is teaching, he, he, he writes to them and tells them, this is how I am praying for you. 
and he's, he's, he's turning the corner. He's, he's exiting from the doctrine address, and he's entering onto the ramp that's leading to practice. But that ramp is covered by, this is how I pray for you. And so think, with, think again with me about being in that context there in the church at Ephesus. You know the Apostle Paul is in Rome, he's in prison, and you're worried about his welfare, you're concerned about his well-being, and you get this letter from him, and in the middle of this letter he begins to say, this is how I pray for you. Surely their radar would have peaked at this, po- at this point. They would have thought, I need to know exactly how he is praying for me. And so let's look at the text, and then we'll, <clears throat> we'll consider the... The truth here, that there is power in prayer. So verse 14, Ephesians three fourteen. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you, may be f- that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Fathers, we turn our attention toward your written word. Lord, we... We confess that this word is our authority. Lord, this is your word to us, and so help us to learn well. Lord, help me to preach well. Help us as a congregation to hear this word and to obey well. Lord, may our, may our prayer lives individually, but Lord, also may our prayer life collectively be changed by the truth that we'll see from the scriptures this morning. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this word. Give us insight and give us grace to obey. We pray it in Jesus' good name. Amen. So Paul begins here in verse 14 with a phrase that we considered last week for this reason. So if you look back at at chapter 3, verse 1, he begins there, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then he launches into into that reminder of the the gospel and the, the mystery of the gospels that all are one in Christ. And so what he's doing in verse 14 is, is he's coming back to the, the thought that he began in verse 1 of chapter 3 and picking, picking it back up with, with for this reason. What is this reason? Well, this reason that he's referring to is chapters 1 and 2. It's the reminder of who Christ is and who these brothers and sisters are in Christ and all of the things that God has done for them in Christ. That reminder that, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not of work so that no one can boast. We are his workmanship. God has destroyed the, the, the dividing wall of hostility, and now we all have access in one spirit to the Father. And in, in chapter 2, verse 22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So all of this truth that's coming to the church at Ephesus is the reason that Paul is saying, I'm praying for you in this way. So what do we learn from this prayer that Paul has for these brothers and sisters? There are three truths primarily that that rise out of the text. The first truth is we must pray with the right posture. We must pray with the right posture. Paul says in verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. 
He uses the word bow. I bow my knees here. Scripture doesn't necessarily prescribe a specific physical posture for our praying. Scripture doesn't say that, that, we, that we have to stand, we have to sit, we have to kneel, we have to lay down, we have to bow, we have to close our eyes, we have to keep our eyes open. The posture here, the physical expression that Paul is referring to with I bow my knees before the Father is a, is a physical representation of what's going on spiritually. And so we, we learn here that one, we pray with humility. He says, I bow my knees before the Father. If you think of some of the teachings of Jesus, this is in direct contrast to the Jews that Jesus often reprimanded, who, who liked to stand in the synagogues and pray big, loud, boisterous prayers so that everyone could hear and make a great deal about themselves. But, but Paul here references bowing before God, an expression of deep devotion and, and unending dependence toward the Father. This, this idea of bowing is, is an expression of a, an appropriate heart posture of humility before our Heavenly Father who loves us and who saved us. So we pray with humility. We also pray in, hum, in, in community. He says, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Paul identifies himself as a child of God, Father. He refers to God as Father. I bow my knees before the Father. But he also identifies himself with all the other children of God. Did you catch it there in verse, in verse 15? From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Our true identity is determined by God, and he calls us sons and daughters. He calls me his son. He calls you his son. He calls you his daughter. And as such, we are brought into this this larger community of faith. And so when we pray, we're praying with, with the millions of people who know God. And isn't it interesting to think that God hears all of us at one time? <laughs> he hears us all at one time, and he can answer individually. We're so stinking limited, aren't we? I mean, you, 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 I interrupted a conversation just a minute ago, knowing good and well that when I interrupted that conversation, that that conversation had to stop so that my conversation could pick up, and then that other conversation that I interrupted could pick back up after my conversation was done. Not so with God. We can all at one moment express prayer to our Father, and He hears every one of us. Every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now the question obviously arises here before we move further into how Paul prays for them is can you call God your father? Everything we're, everything we're going to read about what, how Paul prays for, the, for this church only applies if you can call God your father. If you've not repented of your sin and believed on the Lord Jesus, then this just doesn't work for you. You're still Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3. Go back and look at those verses. You're still dead in trespasses and sins. You're walking according to the course of this world. You're under the authority of the prince of the power there. You are by nature a child of wrath. Only if you can call God your father can, are, the, are the truths of prayer here applied to your life. So we must pray with the right posture, this posture of humility, understanding that when we're praying to our father, we're praying in community. We pray with the right posture. Number two, we must pray with the right purpose. We must pray with the right purpose. There, there are three main petitions that Paul says here to the, to the church at Ephesus to help them understand his purpose in their praying. And, and these petitions move on three, state, three phrases that, that start with the word that. Verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory. Middle of verse 17, that you being rooted and grounded in love. And then in the middle of verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So what are these petitions? The first petition it expresses Paul's purpose here in praying is he wants them to be strengthened by the power of God. He wants them to be strengthened by the power of God. Look at verse 16. He's praying. He says, this is how I'm praying for you. 
that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. There are three phrases that, that, that would, help, would have helped the, the church at Ephesus and then helps us, obviously, understand what he's talking about when he says, I want you to be strengthened by the power of God. He says the word strengthened. He wants them to be strengthened with power. With power. That, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power. Now, Paul previously, if you look back at chapter 1 and verse 19, Paul previously prayed that they would be enlightened to actually know the power. He says in verse 19 of chapter 1, I want you, I'm praying that you will know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to his great might. Now he's praying that they'll not just know about this power, but actually be strengthened with this power. He says, I'm praying that you'll be strengthened with power, second preposition here, through the Spirit. What's the channel that this power is going to come? The channel that this power is going to come from from is the Holy Spirit of God. The source of this strength is the Holy Spirit. This is another point that Paul has already made in Ephesians chapter 1. If you look back at chapter 1 and verse 13, he says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. And so we're strengthened by the same Spirit that indwells us. So he wants them to be strengthened with power. He wants them to be strengthened with power through the Spirit. And then there's a location point here. In your inner being. If you have another translation, it may say something like inner man. In your inner being. What is he talking about here? What is this inner being deal? And in the language of the New Testament, Paul is referring to the heart, to the mind, to the will. We would say in common language, he's, he's addressing the core of the person, the very essence of the person. It, he's referring to that part of us that remains after we are laid in a grave. Our outer selves are wasting away. We are right now closer to death than we were just a moment ago. Right? Like, we understand this. We're, we're all constantly moving toward death. And so our outer selves are, are wasting away. So Paul says, I'm praying that, that you'll be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Your inner self remains forever. It's not wasting away. 2 Corinthians 4, this is this phrase here, inner, inner being or inner self, is a, a, a phrase that Paul liked to use to address the core of the person. He uses it also in 2 Corinthians 4. Listen to what he wrote there. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or they're temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul is praying that they will have power that remains deep within. Do you know this kind of power? This power comes through prayer. Paul is praying. He says, I, I bow my knees before the Father and I pray for you this way, that you will be strengthened through his spirit in your inner being. But there's a cause, there's a reason that he's praying for them specifically in this way that they'll be strengthened by the power of God. And that reason is identified in verse 17, the beginning of verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So when he uses the word dwell here, it means to take up residence and establish himself. Christ, when, even if you're a new believer, whenever someone repents and believes on the Lord Jesus... 
God immediately takes residence up in that person's life. Like, you become the dwelling place of God. You become, and if, if you are a Christian, you are, to use the language of Corinthians, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God has taken up residence within you, and so Paul's praying, I'm, I'm, I'm praying that, that you're strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What is he, what is he praying, actually? We'll, we'll unpack this a little more, but he's praying that by the power of God, they will actually become more like Jesus. This is what Jesus said in John 14, verses 16 through 18. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you, he told them. Jesus is still alive at this point in in John 14 when he's saying this to the disciples. He says he dwells with you because he's there in the person of Christ. But after the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension and the outpouring of the spirit in Acts chapter 2, he will be in you. No longer is he out there somewhere, but now he is here, residing with us, which helps us to understand why Jesus, one of the names of Christ, could be Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. God with us. God all around us, but also God in us. Paul put it this way in Galatians chapter 4, My little children, for whom I again am in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And so he's praying for power so that, verse 17, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So to help us understand this concept a little further, hold your, hold your finger here in Ephesians and turn just a couple pages back to Romans. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. This, this power that he's praying for that Christ would dwell in us, would dwell in our hearts through faith. Romans chapter 8. We're, just, we're diving right into the middle of of his argument here to help us understand this, this concept of power that Paul is praying for. You, however, Romans chapter 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So the argument there, if anyone, does, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. If anyone does have the Spirit of Christ, then he what? Belongs to him. Right? So this is a either or here. Look at verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So the spirit, in verse 11, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. The same, so you understand what, what, what Paul's saying here in Romans chapter 8. The power that is demonstrated, you want to know what kind of power that Paul is praying about in Ephesians chapter 3. Look at the empty tomb. Look at the greatest demonstration of power in all of the history of mankind. That the one who was dead is no longer dead. The power that brought Jesus out of the grave, guess where that power is right now? In us. It, within us. And so Paul, back to Ephesians 3, is praying, I want you to understand and know that the power that brought Christ out of the grave is actually in you. 
this should change our lives. <laughs> this should transform the way that we think, the way that we believe, the way that we feel. The power that Paul is praying for is the power that is completely sufficient to change their lives. And you have to remember the context of the, Ephesus, the church at Ephesus. Like crazy immorality. Just you name it, they covered it in the, in the ring of immorality. And so surely there were some brothers and sisters who were there that would be similar to us. Maybe there's just not quite enough power to change me. Because maybe I've done too much to be changed. Paul says, no, 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 no. I'm praying that you will be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And so back to Ephesians 3. What's going on here? And some of you may be thinking, but wait, I thought, why is he praying that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith? I thought Christ already dwelt in us by the Holy Spirit. Great question. What is going on here? Well, Paul is not praying for their initial justification. That's an assumption that he makes. He, he walks through that, that doctrinal truth in chapter 2. But now God made you alive. You've been justified before God. So he's not praying for initial justification. What he's praying for is their continual transformation. We would call this sanctification, becoming more like Christ. And so we know it's true. Many people begin with Jesus through a prayer, through walking down an aisle, through baptism, through other means of some sort, through good morality, but then they just never continue with Jesus. They become a Christian in confession only. This, would, this is some of our stories even here at Redeemer. But there's a, a pattern of life that doesn't reflect anything of biblical faith in Christ. Paul knew of this danger, and he prayed that they would become more and more and more like Jesus so, and that Christ would dwell in their hearts. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, verse 17. How's this going to happen? Well, it's in verse 16, according to the riches of his glory. Not only does he have the power, he also, have the, he also has the means to make this happen. What is his point? His point is that God has more than an ample supply of power to accomplish what he wants to accomplish in your life and in my life. Well, how, how can I really believe that? How can I really believe that? Look at the cross and look at the empty tomb. There is the evidence of our faith. There's, our, there's the evidence of our becoming more like Jesus. So the question has to arise here when we think about Paul praying for them to be strengthened by the power of God. Is Are we actually becoming more like Jesus by the power of God? Or are we failing over and over and over and over? If we're failing over and over and over and over, then it's a clear indication that we're not relying on the power that is ours in Christ. And becoming more like Jesus means we... We still fail this side of heaven, right? But failures change. The same failure that I, that I wrestled with 10 years ago, though it may flare up from time to time, should not be a consistent pattern of my life. Why? Because the power that brought Jesus out of the grave is in me and is in you. And so we walk in Christ. And if God's Spirit dwells in us, and He does, then we do actually have the power to become more like Jesus. Paul wants them to be strengthened by the power of God. The next petition that he makes for them is he wants them to know the love of God. 
He wants them to know the love of God. It's not that God just has brute force power to crank up the bulldozer and put it in gear and just mow over anything that stands in his path. No, he, as he's praying that they'll be strengthened with the power of God, he also wants them to, to know the love of God. Look at the second half of verse 17. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He is praying that they will grasp that which cannot fully be grasped. Did you catch it there in verse, uh, verse 19? To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He wants them to know something that can never be fully known. He actually began the letter with this same language about love. If you look back at chapter 1, verse, verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons according to the purpose of his will. He wants them to know the love of God. Now, it's important to understand here, he's not praying that they will love God more. Did you notice that? He doesn't say, I'm praying that you will, know, that you will love God more. He's praying that they will actually know the love of God. He's praying that they will know the love that is theirs, that is coming toward them from God. Not, not, he's not praying for a right response because he understands and knows this, that when you have received the love of God, your immediate response is going to be what? It's going to be love back toward God. He's praying they'll know the love of God more. So how does one measure God's love? Do we measure God's love in acres? Do we measure God's love in linear feet? Maybe gallons? Tons? No, he says, I'm, I'm praying that you have the strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth? He's not putting parameters on God's love. His whole point in drawing all these measurements out in their mind is to say, you can't ever understand all of God's love. We don't measure God's love. God's love is too large and is too great to be contained or confined. And so do you know God's love, especially his love for you? God loves you. If you're his child, God loves you. And Paul here is praying for this church. And one way for us to pray for us as a church is that we would, that, that we would be rooted and grounded in love and we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He's praying they'll comprehend this love, to grasp, to, to hold as, as one's own. And for us as Christians, it's crucial for us to remember that we are loved by God. As a son and daughter of the King, if you are His child, you are an object of His affection. No, this is all of grace. <laughs> this is all of grace. Not a one of us in here deserves any affection from the Lord. All of us deserve condemnation, justice, and wrath from the Lord. But in His grace, in our place, Christ stood condemned so that we could no longer be seen as objects of wrath but could now be seen as objects of affection. And Paul's praying that they will be able to comprehend this kind of love. So you can think about it now. And you can think about it for the next two years. And you know what you're still going to keep doing? You're still going to keep comprehending. And when we've been in eternity worshiping Christ for a, a billion years, you know what we're still going to be doing? We're still going to be comprehending this vast well of love that is ours from the Lord. 
He says, I want you to know the love that surpasses all knowledge. But then in, in verse 18, there's an important clarification that we have, to, we have to draw out. It says that you may have strength to comprehend, and here's the phrase, with all the saints. With all the saints. We actually need one another to truly know the love of God. The Bible knows nothing of Lone Ranger Christianity. The Bible knows nothing of doing it on my own. If it's going to be, it's up to me. The Bible knows nothing of this, this American mindset that we have. The Bible is all about community, one another. We're saved individually. We aren't saved in bulk, right? God calls us by name. But as soon as he calls us by name, what does he do? He immerses us into community. And so Paul says, I'm, I'm praying that you will be able to comprehend with all the saints. Why? Because we dry up when we're alone, right? We wither away when we are alone. We grow cold when we are alone. We know God's love with all the saints. And it's often, it's often in, in seasons of enduring suffering together or even observing suffering together. And let's not forget where Paul is writing from. He's not chilling in some beachfront property like on a writing retreat. <laughs> no, he's chained to an imperial soldier, knowing, having a pretty good inclination that his days are numbered at this point. And he's saying, I'm praying that you'll know the love of God and that you'll do it with all the saints, with all the saints. So he prays, he prays that, that they'll be strengthened by the power of God. He prays and wants them to know the love of God. And then he prays and wants them to be filled with all the fullness of God. Last phrase of verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What is he praying here? He is essentially praying for them to grow up into Christ. He doesn't ask that they'll be filled with an attribute of God, like love or holiness, which are, those are fine ways to pray. Right? There's nothing wrong there. He doesn't pray that they'll be filled with, with a gift of God, like grace or peace, something like that. He prays that, they'll, that, that, they are, that they will be filled with all the fullness of God. So what, what's going on? It's very similar to how he prays it in verse 17, that, that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. Here's, here's, here's what's happening. Upon conversion, when God makes us his own, the Holy Spirit takes up residence within us. And so the Holy Spirit lives within us. There is never a point, once we become God's property... Once we become his son and daughter, there will, there will never be a point where the Holy Spirit is no longer within us. And since the Holy Spirit is within us, we are also, our part is, we are also working toward constantly being filled by this same Spirit. Well, how do these two work together? Well, it's similar to, to knowing the truth and then living the truth. It's believing the truth and then Behaving the truth. The, the language that Paul is using here is, maybe for some of us, somewhat of an, uh, an uncomfortable language, but he's really, really talking about experience that is founded on truth. There's an experiential reality to the Christian's life. There is a, there, there's an aspect of our lives that we experience the fullness of God. How do we experience this fullness? Well, we do practical things like pursue holiness. 
We live in joy. We strive for peace. We enjoy grace. And we are filled with his, holy, with, with his fullness. And remember at the point in this letter here, Paul is transitioning, right? He's transitioning from doctrine to behavior. And in the middle of this transition, he's praying that they will be filled with the, the fullness of God. So two statements that, that we'll make to help us to understand what's going on here. Positionally. A declaration that has been made over us by our repentance and faith on the Lord Jesus being called into his family. Positionally, we have been filled with the fullness of God. And so we read statements like Colossians 2, verses 9 and 10. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. John 1, 16. And from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. So positionally, we have been filled with the fullness of God. Practically... We must pursue the fullness of God. We must pursue the fullness of God. This is a theme that we'll come back to to at least two more times in in Ephesians. In chapter 4 and verse 13, Paul writes, Until we attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. So we've been filled with God, and we are pursuing the fullness that comes from God. Ephesians 5, 18. Don't get drunk with wine, but what? Be filled with the Spirit. But wait, I thought we had the Spirit. Exactly. Exactly. This is the point of Scripture. We have the Spirit, and so therefore we are constantly repenting of sin and pursuing Christ and thereby being filled with the Spirit. And this is not just a New Testament concept. We have experiential language all throughout the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, passages like Psalm 73. I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Can that, is that something you would confess? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, my outer self, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For me, it is good to be near God. What's the point here? Simply knowing theology does not make us mature Christians. Experience actually does matter. We can have big heads and empty hearts. And so while we work to fill our heads with the facts of Christ, we must discipline ourselves to fill our hearts with the fullness of Christ. And so we invade our understanding, our comprehension, our knowledge with the truth of Christ Trusting that as we're invading our heads with the truth of Christ, that our hearts toward Christ are actually growing. And so if you've been a Christian any particular amount of time, you should be able to say that you actually love Jesus more now than you did then. And if you don't, well then, you need to pray. Forsake sin and pursue righteousness and, and pursue this fullness. So, so where, where does this fullness happen? What, like... Where does this actually play out? Well, here again, it plays out in the context of the body of Christ, in the church. Verse 19, And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The word you there is plural. We can't forget he's writing to a group of brothers and sisters. He does not call anyone in particular out by name. And so if there's 70 people, he's writing to 70 people. If there's 700 people, he's writing to 700 people. And we get to receive this letter and apply it to us as a community of faith. 
This fullness happens in the context of the local church. He, he's already re- referenced this in chapter 1 and verse 22. When talking about Christ, he wrote, And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So how do we do this? How do we do this as, as a community of faith? How do, how, do we, how do we fulfill this petition that Paul is praying for the church at Ephesus that we can certainly apply to us here at Redeemer? Well, we do things like talking with one another about the gospel, encouraging one another with the gospel. And, hey, here's a good idea considering our text for this morning. We pray with one another because of the gospel. You see, the church isn't just a group of folks who like to hang out with one another. It's not just that we like one another's company. We don't come together just because we all have common interests. We pursue Christ with one another. And so I'm praying for you that you would be filled with the fullness of Christ. And you should pray for me that I am being filled with the fullness of Christ. And we collectively should be praying for us as a body that we as a church are being filled with the fullness of Christ. If all of our conversation just simply stays surface level and superficial, we're really missing the point of what church is all about. You can accomplish that at any place. Just go pay membership dues at another club and go to their meetings and you've accomplished superficial relationship. But if you want relationship that's described by the fullness of Christ, that even as we, even as we put words on it, the, the, the words don't really explain what we are experiencing, right? Like when Paul says, I'm, I'm praying that you'll know, that, that, that you'll be able to comprehend the, the, the breadth and the length and the, and, and the height and the depth, you know as he's writing, he's, he's putting words and he's just thinking, those words aren't enough. This is, this is joy inexpressible. The, the, our human language is limited. We hit a ceiling here. And so we would, like you use the phrase, well, you just had to be there. Like you, you, you explain an experience. You're like, man, uh, you, just, you just had to have been there. Because our words in recounting things fall so short. And so in the community of faith, we are pursuing Christ together, and we are experiencing the fullness of God, and we should pray in this way. So we must pray with the right posture, a posture of humility and in community. Pray with the right purpose that, that, that we would know the, the power of God, be strengthened by the power of God, know the love of God, and be filled with the fullness of God. And then number three, we must pray with the right perspective. We must pray with the right perspective. Paul gets to the end here of this middle section of Ephesians and essentially just begins to worship in writing. He just launches, launches off into one of his typical worship sessions and just starts, now to him who is able to do far. And it just, it's, it's like, it's like he's, been, he's been climbing this mountain and he just kind of begins to glide from this point. And the pen just moves so freely over the page. We pray with the right perspective. What Paul is praying for can be done by the God who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Let's be honest. All too often in our life and all too often in our praying, we belittle God. We make God out to be smaller than he actually is. If, you're, if you don't pray, well, by your lack of praying, you're belittling God in your mind. 
You're not actually belittling God. No one can do that. But functionally, you're just saying, no, God just either doesn't have the power, isn't interested, doesn't really care, whatever the case may be. Paul says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. There are several reminders he gives in this right perspective of God's infinite ability to answer the prayer that he's praying for the church at Ephesus. One, God is able to do or to work. God is not idle. God is not inactive. God is not indifferent. God is constantly doing. So one, he's able to do or to work. Number two, he's, he's able to do what we ask because he hears and he answers our prayer. Crazy thought, God actually wants to hear from us. The one who said, let there be light and there was light, wants to hear from you as his child. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask, Number three, he's able to do what we ask or think. He knows our thoughts. And sometimes we, 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 we imagine things or, or we think toward praying things, but then we're just like, no, nah, I, I probably shouldn't pray about that. That's probably either too insignificant to bother God with or it's too big for God to answer. No, he says he was able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Four, he's able to do all that we ask or think. For he knows all, and he can perform it all. Five, he's able to do more. Paul, what Paul's going to start doing here, just laying like word on top of word. It's just, he, he just keeps layering this, this power in prayer. He's able to do more than all that we ask or think. His expectations are so much higher than ours. Isaiah 55. His thoughts are higher than our ways, our, our thoughts. His, his ways are higher than our ways, far more than we can ask or think. Six, he's able to do much more or more abundantly. Now to him, he's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. He doesn't, when he uses language here, he's able to do more abundantly. He's reminding the, the Ephesian believers and reminding us that God does not give us grace out by calculated measure. It's not like we're going through the line of some soup kitchen or something, and God's, God's like, okay, here's enough for you, here's enough for you, here's enough for you. God is not miserly. God is abundant. So he's giving more abundantly, and then, and then number seven, he's, a, he's able to do very much more, far more abundantly than all we ask or think. For he's, he is a God of superabundance. And so when Paul, you, to bring these words together far more abundantly, this is one of what, what scholars call Paul, Paul's super superlatives. It's, it's words upon words. It's, it starts with a word like abundant, and he says abundant, more abundantly, far more abundantly. And so in the language of the New Testament, it's all packed into one word that Paul just made up. Nobody else even used this word, but when you, when you break the word apart, we get our English translation far more abundantly. It's translated in other places like immeasurably or beyond all measure, infinitely more than. What is Paul teaching the church at Ephesus and teaching us today? That there are no limits to what God can do. There are no limits. limits. Omnipotence, God has all power. Omnipotence does not have degrees of difficulty. You ever ponder that? Like there's, what is too hard for, for God, the Bible says? 
Omnipotence has zero degrees of difficulty. And we often pray like God isn't big enough or God isn't strong enough or God isn't even caring enough to answer our prayer. But there are no limits to his power. And here we come again, going, driving this thing back to the church. Look at what he says, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us. To him be the glory where? Verse 21. In the church. People like me and people like you. Provide glorious ground for God to display his glory. Primarily through the avenue of prayer. In us... In the church, this power of God is at work. What kind of power? Don't forget what kind of power we're talking about here. It's the same power that brought Jesus out of the grave. Is residing within us. Power to conquer our sin and to bring us to life. What kind of power did it take for you to be brought from death into life? Regardless of what kind of sinner you were, you were a really good sinner. Right? I mean, we, we, were, we were all really good at sinning. And... Whether you want to admit it or not, you actually liked your sin. Right? Why were we so good at sinning? Because we liked it. And in the middle of that sin, what does God do? He says, you're no longer dead, now you're alive. I'm making you mine. I'm applying the work of Christ on the cross to your sin debt, and your sin is atoned for. Your sin is forgiven. And not just, is your, not just your sin is forgiven, but Your sin is forgiven, and all the righteousness that Christ has is now dropped into your account. And so when God looks at you, he doesn't see sin. He sees Jesus. He sees his son. What kind of power characterizes a transaction like that? Indescribable power. He's the one who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. You want to believe that's true? Just remember the fact that he saved you from your sin and made you his son or his daughter. And so it's the power to conquer sin and to bring us to life. We have this power within us by Christ, the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within us. And so we, we should pray like we have this power and we should pray because we have this power. And so just, just see and think about the crazy story of grace this is. Here in a feeble and fail group, frail group of people like us, the most infinite power in the universe resides. Like us, like me and like you. And the goal of this praying is the glory of God. Verse 21, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. The goal of this praying is God's glory. And so when we pray in this power, and we're praying even for this power, the the umbrella under which all of this praying occurs is the glory of God. Because we know this is true. We can ask for good things, but we can ask for good things even for the wrong reasons. Right? So we have to pray with, with the glory of God in mind. And so the way Jesus taught the disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus himself is praying in the garden. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And so we must pray for the glory of God above all else. And so are you praying for answers in life? 
Pray for answers for the glory of God. Are you praying for healing? Pray for healing for the glory of God. Are you praying through a season of discouragement? Pray through that discouragement for the glory of God. Are you praying in the midst of suffering? Pray through that suffering for the glory of God. Are you praying in the middle of confusion? Pray through that confusion for the glory of God. Hurt, anger, pray through that hurt and anger for the glory of God. Or do you have a physical need? Pray for that physical need for the glory of God. Don Carson wrote this. God must become so central to all our thought and pursuits and thus to our praying that we cannot easily imagine asking for anything without consciously longing that the answer bring glory to God. Jesus in the garden is our example. Jesus is there. Lord, if there is any other, Father, if there is any other way, if there is any other way, and when he says, nevertheless, what I, not what I will, but you, what your will is, that's what I want to do, he's praying for the glory of the Father. So how's your praying? How's your praying? You're like, well, none? Don't really, I don't remember the last time I prayed. Well, be encouraged because you're probably not alone. And in the community of faith, we pray. We pray with one another. We pray for one another. Are we, are we, as a church, are we growing in our strength by the power of God? Are there things that are happening in and through Redeemer that can only be explained by the power of God? Now, yes, I do believe that to be the case. We're seeing the Lord do some great things for His name's sake. But what else might the Lord want to do? Which... We experiencing or the world observing it can only say, no, that's, that's the power of God. Richard couldn't pull that off. Those folks couldn't pull that off. I know them pretty well. They couldn't swing that. That has to be the power of God. Are we being strengthened by the power of God? Are we growing in the love of God? Reminding ourselves, reminding one another even, hey, you're loved by God. God loves you. Are we being filled with the fullness of God? Are we really becoming more like Jesus? Are we growing in our walk with Christ? And are we living our lives and even praying for the glory of God in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever? Amen. There's power in prayer. And so often, like, our, like we say, our, our Bible stays shut. Our prayer life is non-existent. And so maybe today is a day where you just renew a commitment to prayer, a discipline of prayer, setting a time aside to pray, setting a place aside to pray, becoming diligent and committed to praying, bringing someone else into that arena of praying with you, maybe to encourage you to be uh, disciplined in praying, asking someone, hey, I want you to check on me through this week. You, just say, you can just text me, hey, are you praying? Power in prayer. Knowing truth about Christ is only part of the equation. Living out the truth of Christ is the other part of the equation. And right in the middle of these two aspects of Ephesians, we have this prayer of Paul where he's praying that they'll know the power that is theirs in Christ.
that they'll know the love that is theirs in Christ. And that they'll, by their praying, live for the glory of Christ. May the same be true for us. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we love you. Thank you, Lord, that all things we read about in this passage are ours in Christ. So, Father, we pray that we will be strengthened with your power, Lord, that we would know your love, and that we will be filled with all the fullness of Christ. We pray it in his name.